The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, why don't you take your Bibles uh, with me again and uh, turn to the book of Romans. Uh, the last time we were here together in the, the book of, of Romans, we saw that the gospel was more than just a plan or a set of facts or a system of ethics or a way of life. The gospel is a person, and it's uh, good news concerning the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In uh, Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, it says it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, the gospel is about Jesus, which is why Scripture can say on one hand that we preach the gospel, but on the other hand that we preach Christ, because Christ is the gospel. Uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty three says, but we preach Christ. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him. 2 Corinthians 4.5, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. There is no Christianity without Christ. He is the message, and without him, there is no good news to preach. Without him, we'd still be helpless, hopeless, heavenless, still in our sins, hellbound. But Jesus changes everything. He is the center of the gospel. So there's no way that Paul can talk about the gospel or being set apart for the gospel and not give attention to Jesus Christ. Because he's at the heart and center of the gospel. And that's what Paul does in his introduction. As Paul opens this letter of Romans, he opens it with a statement on Christ. A, a mini Christology, a, a short but powerful summary of the doctrine of Christ in a nutshell. And he provides us with essential truths, essential gospel truths about Jesus Christ. So if somebody uh, were to say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm willing to, to sit down with you and... Uh, and hear what you have to say about Jesus. You know, what's, what's so important about Jesus? What difference does it make that I believe in Jesus? You could actually turn to Romans chapter 1, just the introduction of Romans chapter 1, and give them a summary statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You could walk them through who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the promised one to come. Beforehand in the Holy Scriptures, he was promised to come in the Scriptures. He was born of a descendant of David to be the king of Israel in the fulfillment of the scriptures. He is the eternal son of God, which means that he's equal with God. He died a death that he did not deserve as a sacrifice for sin. He was declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And he commands the obedience of faith among all nations because he is Lord. Just, just a short summary of the gospel right there in the first couple of verses of the book of, of Romans. All that from the introduction to the book, and we've hardly scratched the surface yet. We're still diving down. We're still digging in. And it's all there, either explicitly or by uh, a necessary implication, because all of those elements are found just in the introduction. As Paul says the word gospel, he's got to go into it. And it demonstrates when we're talking about 
Jesus, all of those different facets, the eternal Son of God, the Son of, of David, the one who rose with power, commanding obedience, who was promised beforehand in the Scriptures. What all of that demonstrates is that when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about somebody with definition. We're not just talking about, you know, the, the silly putty Jesus or the Play-Doh Jesus uh, that you can kind of, you know, craft and stretch and shape into any form you'd like him to be. The Jesus that we're talking about is a Jesus that has definition and specific characteristics. And we have to submit our ideas of who Jesus is to what the scriptures say about who this Jesus is. We can't create him to be whatever we desire him to be. And what many people today have is just a Jesus of their own making. Some people have a liberation Jesus who's ready to fight for whatever the cause is, whatever the cause is that you've determined. And the liberation Jesus is not really interested in the justice of God being satisfied. He doesn't really bother much with that. He's more into social justice. And he's willing to overlook your sins as long as you're not part of the power structure. He'll ignore your sins to focus on the real enemy, you know, the rich and the powerful, you know, that's the, the real enemy, you know, so you have the liberation Jesus who comes to your aid to fight for your cause. Other people have the political Jesus, you know, the red, white, and blue Jesus, you know, and he's uh, convenient to pull out during the election cycles, uh, doesn't require lordship overall, you know, he's just happy to get you to the poll to vote because he needs your help so he can help you. And somehow he ends up on both parties. Then there's the genie Jesus, you know, the, the Jesus that the, the word of faith teachers uh, love to talk about, who just patiently waits in the magic lamp until you summon him by prayer, and he'll hop right out and grant you your three wishes. As long as you say the magic words in Jesus' name, you know, he'll give you what you want. doesn't really matter what his will might be. Your wish is his command, and he's ready and waiting to serve your needs. Then you have the homeboy, Jesus. He's just as comfortable with your sins as you are. He doesn't demand reverence, doesn't demand obedience. He's just there to hang out, to listen to your problems, maybe to help you move your couch if you need to, and give you some advice every once in a while if you care to listen. Then there's the, the he gets us Jesus, who doesn't address your sins at all. That's different than the, the Jesus in the upper room where you know, Jesus said that you're already washed. Remember that? You're already washed. But he's not there to, to wash you up. He's not there to address your sins. He's not there to confront you. He's just there to wash your feet. But he doesn't touch the rest of you. He's just there to wash your feet. He's going to leave your soul alone. He's going to leave you in your sin because he doesn't want to be perceived as harsh or judgmental or offensive. He doesn't say go and sin no more. He just says go. Because, you know, who am I to judge? But we don't need a Jesus who gets us. We need a Jesus who saves us. We need a Jesus who saves us. And we could go on, but you get the point. Every one of those images is a distortion of Jesus. They're not the real Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4 says, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. In other words, what Paul is saying is that you have a hard time accepting the real Jesus, but you'll, you'll accept another Jesus who comes along, and you'll bear up with him beautifully. 
You know, the Jesus that I preach, you reject, but somebody else will come to you and preach another Jesus, and you'll bear up with him beautifully. We like the, the other kinds of Jesuses. By contrast, the Jesus who's presented to us in Romans is the only Savior. And from the earliest days of Christianity, believers have known Jesus by his identification. The one who's declared as the Son of God. The one who is the the Lord. The one who is the Savior of sins. If we don't preach the Jesus that the Bible preaches, we don't have a Jesus who can save. We need to understand who the real Jesus is. And like Peter who answered the question, who am I? We need to know how to answer that question. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. Verse 3 speaks about that. He's the descendant of David, verse 3. He's the only Savior, verse 4, who was declared to be the Son of God with power. The empty tomb proves that he had power over death and the grave, and he can offer resurrection life to those who believe. And finally, this Jesus is Lord in verse 4. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That word Lord is the, the Greek word kurios, which is uh, used consistently in Romans to translate the covenant name for God in the Old Testament. This Jesus is Yahweh. He's the, the Lord of glory. He, he's the one that's spoken of in Romans 9.29, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us posterity, we would become like Sodom and Gomorrah from Isaiah 1 verse 9. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, will be saved from Joel 2 and verse 32, Romans 10 and 13. Romans eleven thirty four. for who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor? And all of that is to say that when Paul speaks of the gospel concerning his son, the son that he's speaking about is himself God. He's the second person of the Trinity. In uh, Romans 9, verse 5, he speaks of Christ, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. So it's not enough to recognize Jesus is just a good teacher, as a prophet, as a descendant of David. All of those statements are true as far as they go, but they don't go far enough. The Jesus that we speak of is the Jesus who is the Lord. He's the one that we bow to. He's the one that every knee will bow, every knee will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if you're going to enter into the gates of Christianity, you have to come through acknowledging him to be Lord. He's the one that's over me. He's the master. I bow my knee to him. In Matthew 22, after the Pharisees asked uh, Jesus a series of questions, Jesus turned around and said, oh, I have a question for you. Matthew 22, verse 42, he says, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And that was right, but there's, there's more. Verse 43, he said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. You know, two different words for the Lord there. You know, the, the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord Adonai, you know, sit, you know, at my right hand and I'll put your enemies beneath your feet. They understood that reference in Psalm 110 to be talking about Messiah. But Jesus says, well, how can David refer to the Messiah as his Lord if he came as a descendant of David? So now he's speaking to his son and calling him Lord. He says, how does that work? Because it would be entirely appropriate for David's son to refer to him as Lord because he's the superior and you only are king because I'm king. So, so it would be right for the son to refer to David as the Lord, as the, the master, as the sir. 
it would be inappropriate for David to refer to his son as my Lord, my master. Be backwards. So why is David recognizing his son as having kingship and rulership over him? It's because the kingship of this king came from a source outside of David's authority. And even David himself has to bow the knee to this king. When David recognized the Messiah as my Lord, he was telling us that there's something more about who this king is. This is the king who comes from the outside. Psalm 89 refers to this same king and he it calls him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, and says that his throne would be established forever as the days of heaven. Psalm 89, verse 29. Psalm 2 speaks about this king and says that his inheritance will be the very ends of the earth. In Psalm 45, it speaks about this same king. And in verse 6 and 7, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus was much more than just a son of David. Jesus was the very God. This is who Jesus was, and Jesus is, and it's because the Messiah was David's Lord that he called him Lord, the eternal God, and there's no way to accept Jesus as anything other than Lord. Colossians 2.6 says, therefore, as you have received Christ the Lord, walk in him. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, the gospel is concerning Christ, the Son of God, who is the Lord. And we recognize him as that if we come to saving faith. And there's three specific applications of Jesus's lordship. And we find that in the passage before us in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. Three specific applications of the lordship of Jesus. Uh, First of all, Jesus is worthy of the commitment of his servants. Jesus is worthy of the obedience of all nations. And Jesus is worthy of the praise of of his name. So let's take a look at our passage and dive in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. Actually, I'll start at verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ, Jesus called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this text. Father, we pray that you would open up your word to us, help us to understand the things that are contained in it. Father, I pray that as we behold Jesus Christ, the Lord, and As we think through the uh, application of uh, uh, that lordship to our lives, uh, Father, I pray that uh, you would uh, open our eyes to this truth and that you would help us to to bow the knee to what we find. And uh, Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Number one, Jesus is worthy of the commitment of his servants. He's worthy of the commitment of his servants. Uh, Paul says, through whom... In verse 5, speaking about Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. And in this statement, he refers to this special commission uh, that he received from the Lord to be an apostle. And uh, Paul never got over the gift that it was to serve. In uh, Ephesians 3.8, he says, "To, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. One author says that the gospel is itself a grace. 
So the authority to preach it is an unmerited privilege, and no man deserves to be a minister of Christ. And we've covered this already, so we won't spend a long time here on this one, but Paul and his Damascus Road experience received both grace and salvation, uh, uh, apostleship at the same time. Uh, he often speaks about his salvation and apostleship is uh, inseparable. Uh, for example, uh, if you flip over to Romans, uh, actually Galatians uh, chapter 1, just take you to a couple passages here to show you how Paul talked about his uh, call to service and his salvation uh, almost in the same breath. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, look at verse uh, 15. It says, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me. That's a reference to salvation. So that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's his service. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Uh, flip over to First uh, Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1. Look at verse 12. First Timothy 1 verse 12. He says, I thank Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. So that's a service of apostleship. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. What's he talking about there? Salvation. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And I just show you that to show how he puts service and salvation side by side. I received the grace of service. I've received the grace of salvation. He kind of blends them together, a blending of the service and salvation. So he understood from the time that he was saved that he was saved for a purpose. And in Paul's case, the grace of salvation wasn't considered apart from what God had called him to do. The two are linked together. And Paul understood from the time of his conversion that he was saved for a mission and given a new mission. Uh, being uh, converted, if you remember, Paul was sent uh, on a mission with authority uh, by the chief priest before he was converted. He was on a mission by the chief priest of Israel to destroy Christianity. Over in uh, Acts 26, in verse 10, it says that he locked up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests. In verse 12 of Acts 26, it says, while he was engaged, he was journeying to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priest. He was authorized to do what he was uh, uh, doing, to, to destroy Christianity, to haul people off into jail. He locked up the saints in prisons, cast his vote against them for death, punished them in their synagogues, tried to force them to blaspheme pursued them into foreign cities, all under the authority and commission of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. But now as an apostle, he's under a new management. I'm no longer under the authority of the chief priest. Now I've switched sides and I'm under the authority of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And just as he was dedicated in the past to destroying Christianity, now he's just as dedicated to the advancement of Christianity. As a Pharisee, Paul says in Galatians 1.14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, being more zealous for my ancestral traditions. In uh, Philippians 3.6, he says, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. He was dedicated to a service of destroying Christianity. And why wouldn't he dedicate himself just as fervently to the 
advancement of Christianity now that he's a believer. He's labored now that he's a believer more than even all the rest of the apostles, he says. 1 Corinthians 15 and 10. It says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Now now I'm going to dedicate myself just as hard as I did to destroying Christianity for the advancement of it. Colossians 1, 29 says, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. He was even uh, willing to suffer. In 2 Corinthians 11, it talks about all the suffering uh, that he endured. Dangers from robbers, from countrymen, from Gentiles in the city, in the wilderness, at the sea, false brethren, labor, hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, often without food and cold exposure. Paul says, I'm, I'm giving myself fully over to this new calling. And that's worth asking the question, even though we're not apostles, we are those who've given ourselves over to the Lordship of Christ. And my question for us is, are we willing to work just as hard for our Savior in the same way that we once worked for our sin? Jeremiah 9 and verse 5, Jeremiah grieves for the people of Judah. And listen to what he says. He says, they weary themselves committing iniquity. They weary themselves. Proverbs 4.16 says, they cannot sleep unless they do evil. Psalm 36 verse 4 says, he plans wickedness upon his bed. And some of us, if we look back at the photo albums, we wearied ourselves trying to commit iniquity. Wore yourself out trying to sin. Up all night committing iniquity. And my question is, are we willing to work just as hard now for the Savior as we once did for our sins? Robert Murray McChain was a minister in the Church of Scotland from 1835 to 1843. He was responsible for some of the early missions work among the Jewish people, was widely influential during his life and even after his life. Some of you might even today use his Bible reading plan, you know, one chapter from the Old Testament, one chapter from the New Testament, and a psalm. That's Robert Murray McChain's plan all the way from the 1800s. And he wrote about the the use of time as a Christian in his diary. And this is just one of many, a few of many. He says, what right have I to steal my master's time? (laughs) What right have I to steal my master's time? Redeem it, he is crying to me. He says, oh, how sweet to work all day for God and then to lie down at night under his smiles. He says, oh, brethren, be wise. Why stand you all the day idle in a little moment? It will be all over. A little while and the day of grace will be over. Preaching and praying will be done. A little while and we we shall stand before the throne. A little while and the wicked shall not be. We shall see them going away into everlasting punishment. A little while and the work of eternity shall begin. We shall be like him. We shall see him day and night in his temple. We shall sing the new song without sin and without weariness forever and ever. He says it's only a little while. And if men can sacrifice themselves for sin... Why would we hesitate to sacrifice ourselves for the Savior? We only have a little while. (laughs) We don't don't have as long as we think. And praise God that Robert Murray Machane made the most of his life because he died from typhus fever at the age of 29. (laughs) We don't know how long we have. John 9, 4 says, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. For some of you, You might have wearied yourself for sin. Some of you might weary yourself for riches. Proverbs 23, 4 says, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth, 
cease from your consideration of it. Some of you might have wearied yourself for riches. You know, I'm not talking about being diligent to work, you know, to work hard, but wearying yourself to make riches is a different story altogether. 1 Timothy 6.9 says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. It's amazing what some people are willing to sacrifice in order to get into the next tax bracket. It's amazing what people are willing to sacrifice. I remember I was talking to uh, one brother. He, was, he owned a, a paint company and uh, he had this opportunity to get this big contract. But as he looked at it, he was like, there's no way that I can take this on and, you know, keep a family. You know, there's just no way. I, I, I just like work myself to death. I'd never see home. And uh, the contractor who was offering the job said, you know, take the job. You can always find another wife. <laughs> Later on, somebody else grabbed him and said, let the job go. You can always find another job. <laughs> It's amazing what people are willing to sacrifice. You know, all the, the tycoons, American tycoons, what they sacrificed for money. But then when it comes to serving Christ, people are willing to sacrifice so little for the kingdom. They give to the Lord that which cost them nothing or next to nothing. Malachi 1.8 says, When you present the blind, the lame for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? See if he'll be pleased with you. 2 Samuel 24, 24, David said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David brought, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to give the Lord something that costs me something. David considered his service to God worthy of sacrifice. The Lord is worthy of it. And this is where Paul was. He is, this, this, this gift that I've been given to, to be an apostle... He's going to work at this. He's going to give himself to this. He, he receives it as the gift that, is it, that it is. I've, I've received the grace of apostleship to bring about the obedience of, his, of the faith. And he dedicates himself to doing the work because he understands what a grace and a mercy it is from the Lord. Paul committed himself to the service of Christ because Jesus is worthy of the commitment of his servants. Number two, Jesus is worthy of the obedience of the nations. Look again at verse five through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. And what does Paul mean by the obedience of faith? There's, there's more than one way to understand that. Uh, primarily, there's two ways to understand that. Number one, it could be the obedience that comes from faith, meaning that because I believe, obedience should be a product of that belief. You know, I believe, and because I believe, you know, a product of that belief is that I obey. And what Paul could be saying is that my uh, apostleship is about seeing the obedience that comes from faith. It's, it's a faith that obeys. That's what I want to see in the Gentiles. I want them to believe and have a faith that obeys. Or it could be the obedience which is faith. Meaning that the call to faith itself is obedience. And that Paul is set apart to bring the nations to faith in Christ to obey the gospel, that the gospel itself is a command to obey. And in one sense, both are true. One commentator, uh, Hendrickson, says this, in fact, so closely are faith and obedience connected that they may be compared to inseparable twins. When you see one, you see the other. A person cannot have genuine faith without having obedience or vice versa. 
And that's true. If you have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, it will be accompanied by good works. You know, like James 2, 17 and 18 says, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. So, so faith is demonstrated by what we do. You know, we don't work for salvation, but because we do have salvation, we work, right? You know, it's a product of our salvation. So a genuine faith will be accompanied by good works. Uh, Calvin says it is, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. We're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone, okay? And that's true, saving faith. It will produce obedience. 1 John 2, 3 says, By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. How do you know that you know the Lord? You start to obey him. You start to follow after him. That's how we know that we've come to know him. We, we obey him. But the question is, is the obedience that faith produces Paul's main emphasis? Because the immediate context, Paul is here talking about the proclamation of the gospel. That's what he says in verse 1, that he set apart for the gospel of God. Later on in Romans, we find the same expression in uh, Romans 6, 17. He says, but thanks be to God that through, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient. So you were slaves of sin, unsaved, and you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Romans 10, 16 says, however, they did not all heed or did not all obey the good news. The gospel is to be obeyed. And then in Romans 15, 18 and 19, it says, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, and the powers of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout, as far as the Lycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So, so what he's talking about here, where he's talking about the obedience of the Gentiles, it's connected to the preaching of the gospel. So Paul, here when he speaks about the obedience of the faith, he's speaking about those who are embracing the gospel and obeying the gospel. So Paul can speak about those who refuse to believe the gospel as those who are disobedient to it. Those who are disobedient to it. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, it says, Dealing out retribution to those, and that uh, the Lord will come back, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And why take the time to point that out? It's important for you to understand that the gospel is a command. The gospel is a command. It's not that once a, a person believes that he then becomes obligated to the lordship of Christ. Paul is not saying that I, I want people to believe so that they can obey the commands of Christ. Even the unbeliever is commanded to obey the commands of Christ. And the first command that he's commanded to obey is to believe. That, that's the lordship of Christ over everyone. Over everyone. Jesus in his uh, ministry, Mark 1.15, uh, he began his ministry by saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That's a command. Repent and believe in the gospel. Acts 16 verse 31 you have uh, Paul who's speaking to the Philippian jailer. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in the imperative mood. It's a command, believe. 
Acts 17, when Paul was on Mars Hill, he was vexed in his spirit because of all the idolatry that he saw around him. And he says, well, I've got to wait until, you know, people believe and then I can start telling them, you know, that this is wrong. No, he doesn't wait until they believe and then command them. Like the, the command is issued in the call to repentance. Acts 17, verse 30 and 31, it says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And that's you. All people everywhere should repent. It's a command because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There's coming a time when God will judge the world in righteousness because you've disobeyed him. How have I disobeyed? I don't believe in the Lord. That's what you've disobeyed. (laughs) You haven't believed in the Lord. That's your disobedience. God will judge you for your disobedience. It's a word of command. There is nobody who's neutral. There's no place where there's neutral ground somewhere out there on the, in the universe. I don't care where you go. Shoot yourself up into space. You're still accountable to God because he owns the heavens and the earth. Wherever you go, you cannot get away from your obligation to God. If you don't believe in the gospel, that itself is disobedience. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25 says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't refuse the Lord. Don't refuse the command to come to him. Don't refuse the, 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 the command to repent. Don't refuse that exhortation. When you hear the, the words believe in the gospel, don't, don't plug your ears. Don't turn away from that. That is God speaking from heaven to you. Believe in the gospel. Do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. We, we don't get away. And how many times have you shared the gospel with people and they say, well, you know, that's good for you. That's good for you. You know, you, you try to share the gospel. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you believe that. That's good for you. As if to say, you know, if, if that works for you, you know, more, more power to you. But uh, I'm, I'm fine with my own path. No, it's, it's not just good for me. <laughs> it's not just what works for me. Because if it's what works for me, then it will work against you. Because there's a command. And you're not somehow exempt from the command. So many times we share the gospel with people and they say, I'm good. No, you're not. <laughs> what do you mean you're good? No, it's, it's bad for you. It's not good for you. It's bad for you. There's not a neutral place on this planet that Jesus Christ does not command. Jesus commands every square inch. So sin is not just what you do. Sin is what you fail to do. It's what you fail to do. And the refusal to trust in Christ for salvation is the worst form of disobedience. Worst form of disobedience. Because it just says, I don't believe God. I don't believe God. Think about this. What? What? Why, why, did, why did the world get catapulted into the mess that we live in right now? Because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. Instead of believing God and taking him at his word, you know, I, I think I can figure this out on my own. I'm going to chart my own path. That's the sin that got us into this mess in the first place. Because men refuse to believe. They refuse to believe God. And men will spend the rest of eternity in hell 
for refusing to believe God. Hell will be filled with people who said, I'm good. Hell's going to be filled with people who said, I'm glad that works for you. And Paul's apostleship was an apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. That word uh, Gentiles is the Greek word ethnos. It's a word for peoples, nations, a word that was used for the Gentile nations outside of Israel. And that's how it's used most frequently. And this passage in Romans 1 would have been a, a clear indicator to the Jewish people that the Gentiles are being included. They're not excluded from the, the promises, from the covenant promises of, of Israel. They're being brought in. They're actually going to be grafted in contrary to their nature into the cultivated olive tree. We'll get to that who knows how many years from now in Romans 11. It's not just Israel that's going to be saved. The Gentiles are going to be partakers of this covenant blessing. God told Abraham that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So it's a reminder to the Jewish people that the Gentiles are included. They're included in this this mission. It's the extent of the mission. All the Gentiles are included in this. And Paul says his apostleship is to bring about the inclusion of all the Gentiles. How many Gentiles? All. This is what my mission is about. The obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Everybody. There's nobody that that can say they're off limits to me. I'm here to talk to everybody. Everything moving is fair game for me. You know, you're you're part of the nations? Yep, you're you're mine. That's the one I'm talking to. I'm talking to that one. Everybody is included in this the scope of his work. One pastor put it this way. He says, we should not be content if there is one knee left unbowed to this holy king. Like everybody should be in on this. Everybody should be bowing down. The 12 tribes are not enough for this king. He's worthy of every tribe on earth. He died in order to redeem men from every tribe on earth. Revelation 5 describes the scene in heaven. What a a glorious scene that's depicted for us. Revelation 5 verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Everybody is going to be represented at that banquet. Later on in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, it says, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, all tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, you know, that's going to be the day where we'll sing the, 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 the revised version of God and man at Table R Sat Down. We'll get, the, we'll get the remix, remix, right? We'll remix it and sing it, sing a new song on that day because everybody's there. All tribes, all tongues, all peoples, all nations are going to be before the throne of God. Sometimes we hear about, uh, you know, closed countries. There's no such thing to Jesus Christ. No such thing as a closed country. No such thing as an unreached people group. Every group will be reached. Every nation, every people, every tribe, every tongue will be represented before the throne. There's not going to be anybody that's left out. And a passage like this reminds us that all nations belong to Jesus. No nation is off limits. Jesus says they're all mine. There's no such thing as a closed nation to me. Everybody's going to get the message. And it's the Lord's desire for these nations, and it's his right to have these nations. They belong to him. Psalm 2.8, the father says to the son, ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, 
the very ends of the earth as your possession. Do you think he asked for it? <laughs> they all belong to him. All belongs to him. Luke 24, 46 and 47, Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. All the nations are going to be in. He is worthy of all nations. Worthy of all nations. And lastly, and finally, Jesus is worthy of the praise of his name. It's all for the praise of his name. He's worthy of all praise. It's all for him. It's all on behalf of him. Or we could say it's, it's for his glory. We're to do all that we do for his glory. Look at verse 5 again. The obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for who? For his name's sake. It's all for him. It's all for his glory. We do all that we do for his glory. And that's what's meant when the scripture here speaks of doing something in the name of Christ. It's on his behalf. When we think about the, the name of someone, sometimes we, we merely think about how a person is uh, addressed. How do you call somebody? But the ancient use of the, the name meant more than, you know, just what you put in your, your cell phone to, you know, dial the right person. It was a way to sum up the whole person, his character, his attributes, his value. A name was used to represent the person, who he was, his authority, or his glory. And that's what we often find in the, the Old Testament where it speaks about the name. It's used synonymously with the glory of God. It's a parallel for the glory of God. I'll give you a couple examples. First Chronicles 16.29. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Psalm 72 verse 19. Blessed be his glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Again, it's this parallelism. You know, name, glory, set side by side to say we're talking about the same thing. Psalm 102, verse 15. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth, your glory. Again, it's putting them side by side in a parallel structure to say that when we're talking about the name of God, we're talking about the glory of God. That's his name, his glory. And God acts for the sake of his name. I, I do what I do for my own glory. 1 Samuel 12, 22, the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. For my own sake. Isaiah 48, verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can I profane my name? And my glory I will not give to another. Ezekiel 36, 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name. So when we consider the motivation for the gospel, you know, why, why do we go to the ends of the earth? Why should we be motivated to continue to preach, to continue to, to seek the obedience of all the nations? Why do we do that? It's for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. And what is it that sustains a heart for evangelism? What, what fuels missions? What can a believer rely on when the work is hard and the people are obstinate and uh, you receive one rejection after another? Do I keep on doing this? You know, nobody's listening. I tried that last week and it didn't work. I tried that the week before, it didn't work. Like, why do I keep on doing this? What motivates you? As a Christian, you have a goal that is so supreme that your entire life can come underneath it. It should sit above all that you do. All that you do is for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's for his name. One author said, there's no doubt that we have love for people. We should certainly be burdened for them, have compassion on souls. 
but as important as compassion is for those who do not know God, I suggest that this will not sustain a missionary zeal. Something more is needed. Only a zeal for the true and living Christ to receive his due, to receive the glory and adoration which alone belong to him will sustain a missionary or world missions commitment in the local church. David Brainerd, a missionary to the American Indians in the 18th century, he says, I exceedingly longed that God would get himself a name among the heathen. I cared not whether I lived or what hardship I went through so that I could but gain souls to Christ. It's for him. I, I do what I do for him. Hudson Taylor was a British missionary to China, founder of the China Inland Mission. He says, would that God would make hell so real to us that we cannot rest, heaven so real that we must have men there, and Christ so real that our supreme motive and aim shall be to make the man of sorrows the man of joy by the conversion of many to him. It's for his name. John Patton was a Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. He lost his wife and his newborn son in the first months that he was there. He was warned against going to the New Hebrides where cannibals had murdered and eaten two missionaries before he got there, but he went anyway. And he was warned by an elder of the Free Church in Scotland not to go. Don't go. I mean, they eat people over there. (laughs) I mean, why are you going to go? Why are you going to risk this? Why would you go there? And he replied to the man, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced now and your own prospect or your body is soon to be laid in the grave. There to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. For in the great day my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. I don't care if I'm eaten by worms or by cannibals, as long as I'm serving and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> he says, uh, and your body's seen to go in the grave anyway. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> what are you so worried about? You might as well come with me. You know, you're halfway there already. <laughs> what can sustain a heart for the gospel even when people are obstinate? reject the gospel, and may literally eat you alive for it. What can sustain you? Serving and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ. And we desire that Christ would have the full reward for his sacrifice. And if God can use our feeble efforts for the glory of God, what a glory that would be. What a glory that would be. If he would use my feeble efforts to advance his kingdom, to advance his glory, to advance his name among the earth. And that completely flips the the paradigm right side up. One commentator says, men are very unwilling to admit that God should have any end with respect to them greater than their own happiness. You know, they think it's all about them. You know, isn't salvation all about me? Is it about you? You know, isn't this all about us, that God is just, you know, doing everything that he can to get us? Because we're just such a prize. You know, people use that, that parable of the, the treasure hidden in the field. There were some commentators who said the treasure hidden in the field was us. And Christ gave everything just so he could get us because we were so valuable. No, it's the other way around. The treasure in the field is Christ. And I give up everything so that I can get him. He's the treasure. 
And some people think that everything's just all about me. My salvation is about me as well. Let me ask you another question. Why do you think we exist? You think you exist for you? Newsflash, you don't. <laughs> you are not, you're not here for you. You do not exist for yourself. God did not create you just so he could make much about you. You're not the center of the universe. You're not the sun that all the planets, you know, orbit around because of just how bright and glorious you are. You know, just pulling everybody into your gravitational pull. That's not you. Colossians 1.16 says, All things have been created through him and for him. It's all for him. The Westminster Confession says it right, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's all about him. Piper adds this, that God's glory is also God's chief end. Because God's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy his glory forever. And he goes on to say, God loves his glory. He's committed with all his infinite and eternal might to display that glory and to preserve the honor of his name. God does everything for his glory, and that's why we should as well. It's all about him. And we get stuck when we assume that God exists to make much of us when we exist to make much of him. And that's true even for our salvation. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 1 real quick. Ephesians chapter 1. There's a, a refrain that shows up a number of times in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Look at verse 5. It says, he predestined us. Actually, I'll start further back. I always do that. Verse 3. Let's start at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And it's all about us, right? Look at all that he's done for us. Look at verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Do you know that when you get to heaven and you're glorified, and you're finally in the presence of Jesus Christ, that then you will be forever before the Lord to the praise of the glory of His grace? That you're going to be a trophy for Him. And that's what gives you your greatest value. Why does mankind have value that the animals don't have? Because we're in the image of God. Where do we get our value? It's from him. That's where we get our value from. And when you're in heaven, what's going to be the, the greatest value that you have? I'm here to the praise of the glory of his grace. <laughs> I'm here to, to just show forth how great my God is. Do you want to know how gracious God is? I'm here. <laughs> I showed up. A sinner who despised him, who rebelled against him who at one time didn't believe in him, but he still picked me up and turned me around and opened my eyes to see Christ. And now I'm here. And who is this all about? It's all about him. To the praise of the glory of his grace. I am saved for him. 
It's all about him. I'm created for him, and salvation is all about him. And when I stand in the presence of his glory on that final day, it's all going to be to the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much uh, for this text. Uh, Father, just such a, a wonderful reminder, wonderful reminders that all of this is through him, and all of this is to him, and all of this is for him. The salvation of mankind, the obedience of the Gentiles, it's all about Jesus Christ. And Father, it's our desire that Jesus would receive the full reward of his sacrifice. And Father, even as we share the gospel, I pray that you'd help us to remember that that we share not because we feel like it, uh, not because we think that there's going to be results necessarily, but it's about the praise of the glory of your grace. That we want to speak about the excellencies of our great God and that we, we, we go out to reach men for Christ because it's about you. So Father, I pray that you'd help us to be motivated and help us to remember that, that our salvation is much bigger than us, much grander than us, much more glorious than us. It's about us reflecting the praise of your glory. And the only reason that we show up is because we have a gracious God. And Father, I pray that uh, even today that those who are listening, and Father, that if there are any here who have not yet entered into this glorious grace, and Father, that today would be the day that they would bow the knee to the true Lord, the Lord as he's described in the scriptures, the one who is the son of God, the descendant of David, who is uh, foretold in the holy scriptures, who is God in the flesh, the one who rose again as the son of God with power. And he commands the obedience of the nations. I pray that today would be the day that they would finally bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Recognize that it is a command of Scripture to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, to believe, to repent, to trust in him. And that if they walk away from Christ, my Father, that that is the the, the greatest sin, the sin that catapulted the world into the, the destruction and despair that we see today, all because people fail to believe in you. Fail to trust in God. Fail to trust in his word. And Father, I pray that we would be a people uh, who would hang on to every promise of your word. Uh, That your word would be to us even uh, more necessary than our necessary food. Father, we love you and we thank you for our salvation. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.